0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 70, The Munich Agreement, Part 2, The May Crisis. This week, a big thank you goes out to Colin for the donation, and to Russell, Daniel, Jesse, Soren, Jacob, and Brian for their support on Patreon. You can find out more about supporting the podcast over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Last episode, we discussed some of the background events to the events in Czechoslovakia during 1938. This week, we are going to discuss the first major crisis involving the nation, which occurred in May. During the spring of 1938, there was a lot of tension around Germany and its neighboring nations, thanks to the Anschluss that had occurred in March. At this same time, the efforts of the Sudeten German party had been escalated, with Hinlein heading to Berlin on March 28th to meet with Hitler. It would be this meeting that Hinlein that would summarize by saying that they would have to, quote, demand so much. We can never be satisfied. On May 24th, the Carlsbad program of eight demands would be officially made to the government in Prague, and this was the round of demands that insisted on full autonomy for the German-dominated regions of western Czechoslovakia. All of this was done with the agreement of the German Foreign Ministry and Hitler, but there were far larger plans for Czechoslovakia floating around German military and political leadership groups. For several years, the German high command had been working on a plan for a surprise invasion of Czechoslovakia, codenamed Case Green. On April 21st, General Keitel, the chief of the high command of the German armed forces, would meet with Hitler to discuss the plan. The idea of invading the country had been previously discussed with Hitler, but he wanted planning to be accelerated so that an invasion could be launched at a point in the near future. This would result in a month-long planning frenzy, whereby Keitel and his staff would work their way through more detailed planning for the operation given the information they had about their own strength and that of the Czechoslovak military. One of the goals of this operation was to move as quickly as possible with the invasion once it started, in the hopes of deterring other nations from entering the conflict. The target speed was to complete the invasion and be in control of the entire nation in just a few days, and that meant they would be in control before Britain, France, or Russia could really react. The final plan would be delivered to Hitler on May 20th, with the plan delivered to his residence in Obersalzburg. Hitler would later sign the new and updated version of Case Green on May 30th, including adding the paragraph at the beginning that read, quote, It is my unalterable decision to smash Czechoslovakia by military action in the near future. It is the business of the political leadership to await or bring about the suitable moment from a political and military point of view. An unavoidable development of events within Czechoslovakia or other political events in Europe, providing a suddenly favorable opportunity which may never occur, may cause me to take early action." Details of the plan had not been shared in great detail with other German military leaders, with Keitel telling Hitler that it would not be discussed until details had been approved by Hitler himself. Part of this was due to just wanting to delay conversations, due to concerns about the reaction of some German generals if it appeared that Germany was about to launch itself into an offensive war in the near future. No person would better verbalize their concerns about this than General Ludwig Beck, Chief of the Army General Staff. While Beck had not been officially shown the new contents of Case Green, he knew that it was being worked on. He believed that any action against Czechoslovakia would result in a wider European war, just like what had happened in 1914. He did not think that there was any chance that France and Britain would not enter into a conflict to defend Czechoslovakia, and therefore he strongly believed that Germany, at least in 1938, had no chance of winning such a war, because they would be at an insurmountable economic disadvantage. He would even go so far as to claim that Germany was in a position that was worse than 1914, and even worse than 1917 and 1918, when the First World War had really decisively turned against Germany. While Beck's views would not alter the course of German planning in early May, Beck would continue to have a significant influence on the discussions that were occurring in German high command over the following months. While Beck was convinced that Britain would come into a war against Germany, In London, the discussions of what Britain was going to do were also being had. The Foreign Policy Committee met on March 18th to discuss what the best path of action would be. Now, there were several that could have been pursued, attempting to create a kind of grand alliance with France, Czechoslovakia, Russia, and other nations, announcing some kind of guarantee of Czechoslovakian territory, similar to what would later be given to Poland or the final option, which was of a very different nature entirely, and instead it would be to put pressure on Czechoslovakia to come to some kind of agreement with Germany under the best terms that could be obtained. At this point, this final option seemed to be far less risky, and they could count on the support of the French as well, or at least that was the assumption. There would have to be an attempt to reach out to the French, and the French Foreign Minister Joseph-Paul Bancour so that he could add his voice to the discussions with Prague to get them to make an effort to come to an agreement with the Sudeten Germans. The, the British were, were hoping for a unified front in this pressure. And during this time, the decision-making of the British government was under the influence of military estimates of German intentions and German military abilities. For example, on March 22, 1938, a report would be presented to the cabinet directly from the chiefs of staff of the British military which would simply be titled, quote, Military Implications of German Aggression Against Czechoslovakia. This document concluded that in an event of the German invasion, quote, no pressure which this country and its possible allies could exercise would suffice to prevent the defeat of Czechoslovakia, quote. This would be one of many reasons that the British would push forward with the appeasement approach, and in that approach, a critical piece of making it successful was the belief that it was possible that it could be successful, which sounds kind of silly to say out loud, uh, but stick with me here. Basically, it could only work under the assumption that it could result in an outcome acceptable to the Germans and to Hitler. This belief was key, and it would have two major supporters in the form of British Prime Minister Chamberlain and French Premier Dalladay because they both subscribed to the belief that all Hitler wanted was to ensure that Germans within Czechoslovakia were treated well. This, of course, required some very selective reading of Hitler's previous statements and would prove to be greatly incorrect, but it was a position that that could be argued at the time, given the information that they had. The important part of this for our story is that very important political leaders held the belief that Germany and the Sudeten Germans could be satisfied with small shifts in the internal politics of Czechoslovakia, and many politicians who could have argued a different path were not in a position to debate them. This was particularly apparent in London, where in many circles of politics, journalism, and and the general public, there simply was not a great handle on Central European politics or geography. If you go searching through speeches made in Parliament during this time, you'll see MPs not even using the correct name for Czechoslovakia. This pervasive amount of ignorance to what was happening meant that people like Chamberlain, who was nothing if not confident and at least semi-knowledgeable about what was happening, allowed him to kind of hold serious sway on events. However, I do want to emphasize here that Chamberlain was in no way the sole voice for appeasement, And working with Germany both politically and with German societal norms was not something that was just happening at the highest reaches of politics. It led to situations where, like in May 1938, the English football, or soccer, for us Americans, team would give the Nazi salute during the German national anthem when playing in Germany. The order to give the salute originated in the foreign office, but it was generally not questioned as it went down the chain to the team. Another thing I also like to throw out is that if you look at the kind of arguments that are happening in British politics at this time, what you see are a bunch of people arguing about the motivations and desires of other people that they've never talked to and only have the vaguest idea of who they are and little snippets of what they've said here and there. And so if you pick one, if they look at one speech or they look at a different speech from that person, they can draw totally different conclusions.
0: that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit. That made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is where are you taking them? While
2: the Germans were developing their plans for Case Green, news of the developments of the plans were leaking out, first to Czechoslovakia and then to its allies in Western Europe. The conduit for much of this information was Paul Thumel, an officer in the Abwehr, the German military intelligence service. He had been recruited and became an informant for the Czechs in February 1937, and by 1938 the type of intelligence that was being passed over included high-grade, highly secret information. The topics ranged from the Abwehr itself, the actions of Nazi secret uh, security services, uh, mobilization plans, details of German frontier fortifications, and then also Wehrmacht battle orders, including Case Green. Over the course of late 1937 and early 1938, he would sort of deliver Case Green to the Czechs, at the same time that it was sort of being created and, and updated. These were then given to the British through a passport control officer in Prague, who was able to send it off to London. In London, the information provided made for some worrying readings. There was obviously the background of the general plan for German operations, but in May 1938, it also began to point to the Germans actually making preparations for an invasion to happen very soon. The rumor was that the invasion would begin with a campaign of violence within Czechoslovakia focused around the elections that would be held on May 22nd. Explosives and other weapons were to be provided to German agents within the country, and then there were plans to move units of the SS and the Wehrmacht up to near the border. They would then move over the border as the sabotage operations got underway. The excuse that they would use was that they were merely moving in as peacekeepers. As this information was solidified, the typical diplomatic actions began with the British ambassador in London confronting German State Secretary Weizsäcker uh, about the reports. Weizsäcker claimed ignorance of any such plans, as could be expected, because while there were plans in place both for an invasion and for other supplementary activity, there was nothing planned for May 20th. This did nothing to dispel the fears among the British, French, and Czechs that a war was about to start. It was due to these concerns that the government in Prague would order a mobilization. This was not a full mobilization of the entire military, but instead a partial one that called up one year of reservists, which was about 70,000 strong, and then five classes of specialist troops, which added about 114,000 more. Then there were also 15,000 security forces used to maintain order. Almost all of the accounts that we have of these troops point to them having very high morale and that they were very ready and willing to fight. The decision to push forward with this step had been made by the government on May 20th, and their reasoning was defensive in nature. They would move into the border fortifications over the course of the night and into May 21st, and by dawn the next day they were ready and waiting for any possible German attack. Their greatest concern, or the greatest concern of the Czechoslovakian government, was that they did not want to end up like the Austrian government just a few months earlier, where the Germans were able to move in before any real response could be coordinated. While the ordering of the partial mobilization was made for rational reasons, the Czechoslovakian government felt that there was a possibility of invasion and they took steps to prevent it. It sent shockwaves around Europe. In Germany, when Hitler was informed, he apparently went off under one of his fury filled tirades. Meanwhile, at the German Foreign Office and then at embassies all over Europe, German representatives were almost under constant diplomatic pressure to make an official statement that they had no plans for an invasion. In Prague, the German embassy started the process of burning all-important papers. Everyone was laying the problem at the feet of the Germans, and there was one thing that they were afraid of, a European-wide war. The French put pressure on the Germans to clearly and publicly back down, while they were also in constant contact with London. Paul Boncourt would ask the British cabinet to make a public declaration that they would stand by France if it went to war for Czechoslovakia under the idea that this assurance would force the Germans to back down. Then rumors shot between the capitals that the British delegation in Berlin was in the process of evacuating the German capital, a clear indication that escalation was imminent. This rumor can be traced back to the fact that a British naval attaché in Berlin was previously scheduled to make the trip back to London to visit family. Another member of the embassy staff then asked if his family could also travel back with the attaché which then cascaded into other families also hoping to head back to London via the same train. The party grew so large that an additional rail car had to be added to the train, and as soon as that happened, the news got totally out of control. Now, as things appeared to be spiraling out of control, the Foreign Office in Berlin informed the Czechoslovakian government that there were no German troop movements happening or planned. To the governments of Europe, it appeared that the Germans had officially backed down. We of course know that they didn't, because they actually were not planning to invade, but nobody else knew that. And as is always the case, the truth did not matter, only perceptions. And the perception in London, Paris, and Prague is that they had won a great diplomatic victory. They had put sustained political pressure on Germany, and it appeared that they had backed them down from the course of invasion. The overall feeling in the capitals of Europe was one of relief, that war had been averted and that they had, by their own actions, prevented it, making it seem to create a blueprint for the future. In Germany, the events of May were seen as a serious embarrassment. German strength had been questioned openly, and due to a lack of preparations, she had been forced to give in to those questions. Of course, the interesting piece is that the Germans were being accused of planning exactly what they were already planning. I mean, they were in the final stages of planning Case Green. And while it was not scheduled for May 1938, The humiliation of those events caused Hitler to demand an acceleration of the time frame. October 1938 was placed as the new date, by which the Czechoslovakian question had to be answered, and answered strongly. This plan for an acceleration would really begin on May 28th, when Hitler, after a bit of time secluded in the Berghof after the May Crisis, called a meeting of Germany's military leaders. At the meeting, he informed those present that by October 1st, the invasion would be launched, and that in the meantime, construction on the West Wall must be accelerated as much as possible to prevent possible Western intervention. Along with this, the German military must be ready to mobilize 96 divisions when the time came. He would also go on to say many more things. His speech would go on for something like two hours, but these were the most important. Some shifts were made shortly after the meeting. Work on the West Wall would occupy half a million men over the course of the summer and into the autumn. The usual autumn maneuvers were moved forward into the summer, which would allow them to both get out of the way of a possible invasion, but also result in the Wehrmacht being as prepared as possible for action. The German military was planning to go to war, even if it meant another European-wide conflict. But there were still some who strongly believed that this would set Germany on a very dangerous path. And one of the voices leading that charge was General Beck. In the middle of July, he would write another memorandum, this time directly at Brauch, the commander-in-chief of the German army. He would personally deliver the memorandum directly to his hands. Beck believed that if the generals of the German army could not persuade Hitler to alter course, they simply must resign. There were, Beck would claim, limits to their allegiance to Hitler. And if they believe that he was leading Germany down a path of ruin, they must resign and leave the army without leadership to actually start a war. Beck believed that this was the only way to avoid a general catastrophe. In an attempt to get as much support as possible, Beck convinced Brodge to put together 20 of the army's highest generals and bring them in for a meeting. This would take place on August 4th, and Beck's original plan for the meeting was for Brauch to give a speech that had been prepared by Beck. But when the meeting happened, Brauch decided to not carry through with giving the speech. He kind of just got cold feet. Instead, Beck would read his memorandum of July 16th to the wider group. Beck's concerns initially found a receptive audience, but there were always some serious roadblocks when it came to getting any kind of actual plan together and any kind of agreement. Many of the generals present were simply not going to stand up to Hitler in any meaningful way and no matter what especially while he was on his current run of success he had just completed the anschluss and he had made so many changes to german society that the army saw as favorable this meant that the only real outcome of the meeting was that brauch finally agreed to directly provide beck's july memorandum to hitler uh, something he'd resisted up to this point but, but beck wanted him to do because Beck felt that he was making good arguments here. When Hitler read the memorandum, he was very, very unhappy. Another rage-fueled tirade followed, directed both at the memorandum itself and also all the generals who had participated in the meeting. Then he did something really interesting. He summoned together a group of military officers to meet him at the Berghof. But it was not the 20 generals who had met with Beck, but instead a bunch of younger staff officers who were working under those generals. He did this because he hoped that they would be younger and more eager to set their their military careers off on a better foot. You know, they were looking for quick promotions, which Hitler, as the head of the German military, could provide. To this group, he would give a three-hour lecture on his military plans, but the audience proved far less enthusiastic than he hoped. The obvious play that Hitler was making, with a clear insult aimed at the leading generals, did not set well with his audience. He was trying to bring them into circumventing the command hierarchy. On the same day as the meetings with those officers, Beck was also invited to meet with Hitler on August 10th. One of the participants in the meeting was General Erich von Manstein, who will of course play an important role in, in so many of the German operations during the war. He would say after the war, actually at the Nuremberg Trials, that this was the last meeting where Hitler allowed his generals to ask questions or even serious, you know, seriously discuss what was happening. It would not be a pleasant meeting between Hitler and Beck, and at its conclusion, little had changed. On August 28th, Beck would tender his resignation, believing that he, would, he could not sway other officers, and still believing that Germany was on the wrong path. But even at this late stage, with so little faith in Hitler or the future, Beck still agreed to not publicize his resignation after being convinced that it would be dangerous for news of the resignation of the chief of the army staff to begin circulating during a period of such international tensions. Agreeing to this, which Hitler kind of talked him into, sort of robbed Beck of his last chance to do, have any influence on events, and removed another piece of possible resistance to the plans for the invasion of Czechoslovakia, which grew ever closer to becoming a reality. Thank you for listening and I hope you will join me next episode for part three of our series on the Munich Agreement, in which we will look at the events of the summer of 1938 as a bunch of different governments in Europe get involved in trying to solve what would become the Sudeten question.